The book of Exodus begins with two nations in harmony with one another. The Israelites are living in the land of Goshen, which belongs to the nation of Egypt, and the Israelites and Egyptians are actually living in peaceful coexistence with one another. But then a new pharaoh, a new king of Egypt, comes into power. He feels threatened by those Israelites, and so he enslaves them. Now, these people are the people of God, the people of Yahweh. And so God will not let this happen. He knows that he has a covenant or a promise with the people, so he punishes Pharaoh with ten plagues. Now, eventually, Pharaoh lets them go. He's had enough of it, and so the Israelites are freed. But at the last minute, Pharaoh reg regrets what he's done. He, he thinks, I've just let all of this free labor go. And so he chases after them with all of his army. Now, at the Red Sea, it looks like Pharaoh's about to win. It looks like Pharaoh's about to recapture all of these slaves and bring them back to Egypt. But that's not what happens. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites cross through on dry ground to the other side, and Pharaoh chases after them. And right at the last minute, God allows all of the waters to crush the Egyptian army, and God frees Israel from slavery. But just like we talked about last week, Israel doesn't end up in the Promised Land. They end up in the wilderness, and life in the wilderness is not easy. The journey to freedom uh, in the promised land is a lot longer than they thought and a lot more difficult than they thought. They have to find water and they can't do it. They have to find food and they can't find it. They face armies that they aren't equipped to battle. Moses faces a lot of responsibilities he can't handle, but each time God provides. Now, what this all means is that freedom from slavery in Egypt doesn't exempt Israel from all of life's difficulties. It takes a lot more trust in God to provide. Now, that is what God does. God provides food. God provides water. God provides military success. But it was challenging. It wasn't easy. God didn't exempt them from suffering or difficulty. Now, after those kind of initial problems after slavery in Egypt, they finally end up at a mountain called Sinai. Now, what you gotta remember is that Moses has already been to this mountain. This was where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And God promised him in that moment, there will be a sign that I am with you because you will return to this mountain to worship me. So Moses goes off to Israel, he brings them back, and now that promise has been fulfilled. He's back at the mountain. They're here to worship God. And at this mountain, God speaks to Moses, and he makes a covenant or a promise. He says, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. Now, the whole earth is mine, but you, Israel, you will be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Moses communicates this promise to the Israelites. He makes this offer to them, and this is what the Israelites say. Everything the Lord has spoken, we will do. They agree to the covenant. They agree to this promise. They promise themselves, we will abide by the law. And then God speaks through Moses and speaks to Moses the famous Ten Commandments that we just heard. Now, from a modern perspective, sometimes any law, any command in Scripture doesn't come off too well. 
We think that a God who gives law sounds legalistic. He cares about tiny, minor issues. Or this God sounds distant, that he doesn't really care. He speaks from on high, as it were. Or it just sounds like God is demanding. He doesn't really understand what men and women are like. We, we can't abide by laws well. This God isn't realistic. He has too high of expectations. But Jews and Christians have actually celebrated the Ten Commandments for the exact opposite reasons. First of all, we know that way before God ever gave the law, God freed the Israelites. God, God didn't do any kind of morality check on them. He didn't say, hey, I'll free you if you agree to follow the law. Way before any of that, God did it himself. God freed the Israelites from slavery totally out of his love for them. And this God makes promises. He wants to have a relationship with them. He wants to have a vow with them. He cares about them. He calls them his treasured possession. This God is not distant by any means. And also, ancient Jews appreciated this because their God is clear with them. Now, I know that kind of sounds uh, strange at first, but you have to know what other kind of pagan cultures were like. So I just want to show you kind of the difference between the God of Israel and the, and the experience of other pagan nations around them. This is an ancient prayer to any God uh, that other people, other nations would pray. They would say, may my Lord's anger, angry heart be reconciled. May the God I do not know be reconciled. May the goddess I do not know be reconciled. May the God, whoever he is, be reconciled. May the goddess, whoever she is, be reconciled. I do not know the wrong I have done or the sin I have committed, the abomination I have perpetrated or the taboo I have violated. Okay, so the pagan gods were different than the God of Israel. Most pagan gods were known by a pseudonym. They didn't have, they didn't reveal their names, but our God revealed his name to Moses. He said, I am Yahweh. This is the name. We're on a first name basis. And the pagans were, were desperate to know what the gods wanted, but their gods didn't speak in the same way that our God does. So when the Jews were at Mount Sinai and God delivered clearly what his expectations were, this was a relief. They actually knew what the one God wanted. This, this is a relief because if you're praying this kind of prayer, you're exhausted. You're in you're in terror at, at, you don't even know what. You don't know what your God expects. You don't know what your God wants. You just pray and hope that they're not mad at you and that you haven't betrayed your God's expectations. But our God is clear. Our God cares. Our God wants the best for us. So a better way to see God's commands are as gifts. They aren't meant to be a, a burden to us. They're meant to be a structure for our life and a structure for Israel out in the wilderness. I've, uh, I've been reading this book by uh, John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and I would strongly recommend it. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I think it just has some really helpful images uh, for rules. And one of the images is the image of monks in a monastery. You see, the, the monks leave the world behind to live in a monastery and pray for the world and especially pray for us 
fellow Christians. But that doesn't mean they're not still human, right? When they join the monastery, they have to have a life together, a rule by which they live, and it was called the regula. And this was, you know, rules for praying together, rules for worshiping together, rules for being reconciled uh, with each other when they sinned against each other. So even monks who've kind of left the world behind and, and live very holy lives, they, they know that they're not perfect and they have to have a rule by which to live. Uh, another image that John Mark Comer talks about in his book is that of a trellis. So I think this can actually really help us. Um, a trellis is a wooden or, or metal structure to help vines grow in an orderly way. And if a vine doesn't have a trellis, it just won't bear fruit and you won't get wine from it. And us humans, we're the exact same way. We need structure. We need rules. We need something to, to help us grow and bear fruit. Just, just think about this in some of your relationships. What if you only relied, what if you only relied on spontaneity? Think about if you never spent time with your wife or friends or coworkers or people from church, uh, only based on if you happen to run into each other in the city of Austin. That relationship would never work. It would never grow. It would never flourish because all relationships need structure. All relationships require intentionality and time and energy and decision-making. You cannot rely on pure spontaneity. We all need a trellis to grow. We all need a structure to flourish. And this is what God's commands are like. And I'm sure some of you have actually seen this play out in your life in the past few weeks. I mean, how's it going? Let's be honest. How's it going staying home constantly? Are you going stir-crazy? Has the order to your life been dismantled or interrupted? And, and here's the thing. Here's the harder question. Where do we tend to go when we don't have structure? We don't just start magically reading our Bibles and praying for hours at a time or meditating in solitude or silence. We watch the news obsessively and we overeat and we drink too much and we binge Netflix. We, we need structure. And I'm sure you've experienced this. When you don't have structure, our tendency is not good. So God's commands aren't these arbitrary things that he weighs us down with. Our God knows us perfectly. He gives us commands so that we can flourish. He knows that humans need structure. We don't do well without it. Now, he also, he also gives us rules because he cares about relationships. If you actually look at the different commands in, in the Ten Commandments, you can see that they're primarily about our relationship with God and our relationship with others. So God says, I don't want you to have any gods besides me or with me or above me or below me. I'm the only God that exists. And the, that relationship depends on you not treating anything else like a god. I also don't want you to make images to kind of project what you think I ought to be onto me. I don't want you to misuse my name. I also want you to keep the Sabbath. I, I made everything in, in six days and on the seventh day, I made that holy and I made that as a gift to you so that you don't work, so that you know the, the whole universe runs based on my power, not on your hard work. But then there's, there's kind of a distinction here where God starts to move to, towards our relationships with one another. He says, I, I want you to honor your parents, your father and mother. 
I don't want you to, to murder each other and wantonly commit violence against each other. I want you to respect the vows between husbands and wives. I want you to respect other people's property. I, I want you to tell the truth. I want you to, uh, to not envy and, and be jealous of other people's possessions. You can see God is maintaining relationships with these rules, re relationship with him and then relationship with others. These rules, again, are not arbitrary weights to make us feel bad about ourselves. They're about relationships. Now, at the end of the Ten Commandments, we, we see this, uh, this scene unfold, and I just want to read it out to you. It says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now, this seems like a contradiction at first. Don't be afraid. But the goal of all this is that the fear of God will be with you. That kind of seems like a contradiction at first. But I love Pete Inn's summary of this. He says, this is what Moses is saying. Don't be afraid. God is giving you a taste of himself so that this memory will stick with you to keep you from sinning. In other words, God wants you to succeed. He wants you to obey him. He wants you to, to be faithful to this covenant. He wants to keep you from sinning. God's law is a gift. It's not a, a, an oppressive constraint. It's liberated obedience. And it helps, it, it helps us to know that no matter who you are, you're going to serve somebody. Now, the Israelites served Pharaoh at first, and we saw how well that went. But the goal isn't to just now serve yourself out in the wilderness and just do everything you want. It's to have the right master, the right Lord, the right God, and the only true God is Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's the God you want to serve. You don't want to serve yourself and you don't want to serve Pharaoh. You want to serve the only true God. Now, in discussing the difference between like slavery to Pharaoh and, and slavery to ourselves, I think this comparison has actually really helped me. And th there's a difference between these two famous books. Uh, the first is George Orwell's 1984, and the second is Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Now, in, in 1984, there's an oppressive government, and it reminds us a lot of kind of what it was like for Israelites to be under Pharaoh. These are harsh taskmasters, oppressive tyrants. And in this book, the government burns books so that people won't be able to read and be liberated by the knowledge in books. But Brave New World goes one step further. The, the government in Brave New World doesn't burn books because the people are so distracted and so entertained and so obsessed with their own pleasure that they don't even want to read books. Do you see the difference there? In 1984, people want to read books, but the government burns the books. In Brave New World, they don't have to burn books because the people don't even want to read books. And I think this is a fantastic analogy for these different kinds of slavery. This is like slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt with an oppressive tyrant. This is slavery to yourself, to your own unconstrained passions, to your heart without structure, without 
a rule without a trellis to hold you up. Now, according to the book of Exodus, it takes 14 chapters for Israel to get out from slavery under Pharaoh. It takes the rest of the Bible for people to be free from the slavery of the heart. Do you see the difference there? 14 chapters is slavery under Pharaoh. The rest of the Bible is about internal freedom. If you just read the rest of the Bible, you'll see just how long the process of freedom really is. Now, unfortunately, I think we often pit God's love and God's law against each other. But if you read this whole story, you just see God's love everywhere. You see God's love before the law in that he freed the Israelites from slavery. You even see once you actually read the law that God clearly cares about people. He wants them to treat each other well and flourish. And then God's love is after the law because when they break the law, God has ways for them to be forgiven of their sins. God's law is not opposed to his love. God's love precedes the law and is seen in the law and even comes after disobedience to the law. We need God to give us this structure, to give us a regula or rules. We, we don't want to be unstructured, to be chaotic out in the wilderness. We want God to speak to us, to give us what we need to do to have a good relationship with him and a good relationship with others. God's law is a gift. God's commands are clear speech to us to know how to flourish so that just like a vine, we can bear fruit. 